The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 29th, 2022. This week, Justice Stephen Breyer formally announced his plans to retire after serving for over 27 years on the Supreme Court. He is 83 and is the oldest member of the Supreme Court. President Biden has confirmed that he will nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court to replace Justice Breyer and will announce his nominee by the end of February. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from January 2016 in which Justice Breyer sat down with Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes and Newsweek's Dahlia Lithwick. During their conversation, Justice Breyer provided an overview of how, in a globalizing world, the steady operation of American laws depend more on the cooperation of other jurisdictions than any other time, and weighed how the court can balance national security objectives in an increasingly connected world. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 30th, 2016. That was United States Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer discussing how the court's decisions regarding presidential power and national security have evolved throughout American history. Last week at the Brookings Institution, Breyer participated in a discussion with Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes and Newsweek's Dahlia Lithwick about his new book, The Court and the World, American Law and the New Global Realities. Justice Breyer provides an overview of how in a globalizing world, the steady operation of American laws depends more on the cooperation of other jurisdictions than at any other time, and ways how the court can balance national security objectives in an increasingly interconnected world. Strobe Talbot, president of the Brookings Institution, introduced Justice Breyer and the panel. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 155, Justice Stephen Breyer on the court and the world. Everybody, I'm Strobe Talbot. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you here this afternoon. Thank you for braving the elements. I think it would require a little more bravery tomorrow afternoon around this time. So we timed uh, this uh, event, I think, uh, perfectly. And particular welcome to Justice Breyer and to Joanna Breyer. Uh, They are both friends of this institution, friends of many of us here. Justice Breyer's connection with the Brookings Institution goes back a ways. I suspect that most of you noticed when you came into the front entrance of the building that there are some banners uh, celebrating our 100th birthday here uh, at uh, Brookings. This is also the 40th anniversary of the publication of Justice Breyer's first book, which uh, came out under the imprimatur of the Brookings Institution Press. Later this year, by the way, the Brookings Institution Press will be publishing 
his dissent in the death penalty uh, case. Uh, that'll be uh, in the fall. We also have a annual lecture series here uh, in his honor and in his name, and the next one of those will be during the course of the spring, and the subject is uh, always uh, the theme of international law and its important its importance to the world and, of course, to the United States. Today, we are going to uh, hear from him and the two panelists, Dahlia Lithwick and my colleague from the Governance Studies Program, uh, Ben Wittes, here on a related question, which is the degree to which and the reasons for United States law taking account of the laws of other countries. Uh, this is the topic of his new book, The Court and the World, which has been widely and prominently and enthusiastically uh, reviewed uh, in recent uh, months. So with that, I'm going to uh, turn the uh, proceedings over to the panel, and there will be plenty of chance for you to uh, interact uh, with Justice Breyer and be part of this conversation. So with that, uh, Ben, maybe you'll uh, just uh, open it up. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming out on this uh, cold day. Um, I, uh, I will dispense with introductions because we really are dealing with two people uh, who uh, don't really require an introduction to a Brookings audience. Um, and we're going to structure this just as a conversation. Uh, Dahlia and I will ask questions for the first uh, half, roughly, and then we will go to questions from the audience. Uh, please make sure your phones are uh, silenced, um, and um, uh, we will. Uh, and and as you have questions and want to get in on the conversation, signal me, and uh, I will say this again before the time comes. Uh, wait for a microphone to actually come around before you start talking. So, Justice Breyer, let's start with um, just a, a little bit of an overview of, of the project that you undertook in this book. Uh, why did you want to write a book about the court situated not in American law but in the world as a legal and non-legal uh, venue? And... What's the overarching theme that holds the project together? Well, I wrote it so I could speak at Brookings. <laughs> <laughs> the first book, by the way, you still can get. <laughs> it's at uh, Amazon. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Regulation of Energy by the Federal Power Commission, which I wrote with Paul McAvoy. It only costs a penny. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> and if you have one of those free postage things, it's just a penny. Now, the second book, which I think I also spoke of here, it was, it was a better book, I think it was called uh, Regulation and Its Reform. And I perhaps said this here, but uh, the Los Angeles Times reviewer uh, said uh, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice emerges from the pool of tears with the dormouse who begins to read from the history of England, Hume's history of England. Why are you reading that, says Alice, and the dormouse says, because this is the driest thing I know. That was before <laughs> Breyer wrote this book. <laughs> right. so, so in any case, I thought I would try to do better. The, 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 uh, 
uh, uh, theme of this is, is uh, to show people something. Uh, what is it I want to show? Uh, I want to show, uh, I feel I and maybe some others and maybe lots of ordinary people who aren't specialists, uh, when they hear words like interdependence, the globe is shrinking, a slight cliche, uh, uh, globalization, uh, they, they are like uh, Fabrice Del Dongo, the history, the uh, hero of the uh, Charter House of Palmer, who is wandering around in the battlefield of Waterloo. Bullets are flying, the fog of war is everywhere, Napoleon's riding back and forth, and he thinks to himself, something really important is happening here. I just wish I had any idea at all what it was. <laughs> and that's sort of what we think about, or some of us think about globalization. I mean, how does it affect us? So I want to be absolutely concrete. And I'd say here, I'm giving you a report from the front. I've seen considerable change in this respect in the 20 years that I've been on the court, a little longer. And uh, I want you to see that change, not in terms of generalizations, but in terms of specific kinds of problems, which I would have said would have risen maybe once in a term, and now maybe 15, 20% of the cases, where you have to know what's going on abroad in order to decide the case. That's not necessarily picking up somebody else's legal opinion written in Liechtenstein or something and putting it in ours. That's not the exact, sometimes, yes, but not generally. It is knowing how other people suffer from and deal with similar kinds of problems. So I've picked five or six. And I want people to see how our court has changed because of this and that it has nothing to do with individuals. It has to do with change in the nature of the world. And I want, by the way, I'd also like uh, people to see more about how our court decides decisions, because there's no way you can read about this decision, these decisions, without understanding better uh, how we actually go about approaching decisions and why we do what we do. And the last point I think I'd like people to get out of this, and I hope some of them do, is that we do have a kind of choice in the world uh, the problems are global, security, environment, health, commerce, and call for cooperative solutions. And if we cannot do this through law, there are going to be other ways of doing it, and those other ways are a lot worse. And we see them every day on the television. So I think there's an important general message, and I think there's an important learning experience, and I think there's a more specific learning experience, if you can get out of it, how the world has changed, even in respect to our institution. Okay, so Dahlia, jump in as you have questions, and um, I'm just going to put out two. Um, so one is, um, when people read the, your name in connection with the title, The, the Court in the World, a lot of people will immediately jump to your long-running debate with Justice Scalia about whether and under what circumstances it, it is appropriate to use foreign law sources as, as authorities in, in American judicial opinions. This book is actually about a much broader subject than that. And I I'm, I'm, would like you to sort of walk us through what the connection between that debate and this larger project is, and, and then talk a little bit about the four areas that you've identified as kind of ground zero in this conversation 
uh, in your report from the front? All right, let's 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 take the first. Uh, uh, it is true, and most of the reviews in the United States have said what you just said, but they don't even notice what the book's actually. Well, I don't want to. Be too <laughs> it's very dangerous to read a review of your book. Paul Bator told me that years ago. He said, "You read a review of a book you want, and either it's sort of rude, or it's complimentary. And if it's rude, you think, oh, and you think, why did I read it?" And if it's complimentary, where it says it was good, you think, but do they know how really good it is? <laughs> so there's no payoff in reading reviews. And the, but, but it is true. Now, the ones, there were a couple written in Europe, one in a magazine called Europe and one in the uh, financial, uh, the, in the uh, Economist, in the online version, that did get the point, which you just said. This is not about a debate with Justice Scalia. There is a connection. What is the connection? The connection is that there is a political debate, I think more than a legal debate, about whether the court should, in its opinions, refer to decisions of foreign courts. I learned that when Congressman Goodlatte and I were at some kind of seminar, and he was going on about how we shouldn't do that, and I said, I guess that's aimed at me. He said, yes. <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you why I do it. Don't, people in public life are usually pretty good at debating. So don't be quite as self-confident as I was at the moment. I, I said, well, I'll tell you why I do that. I do that often uh, because uh, there are many, many more courts in the world today in countries that have constitution like ours. They have independent judiciaries. They have problems like ours. So if a person with a job like mine has a problem like mine with a document like mine and writes, why don't I read it? I don't have to follow it. It doesn't bind me. Good argument. He said, yeah, read it. He said, just don't refer to it in your opinion. <laughs> so, so I said, well, look, I said, uh, but um, uh, there are a lot of countries in Eastern Europe that are just trying to establish these courts. They're newly established courts. They help produce uh, uh, protections of democracy, human rights. And sometimes they need a little recognition so they can go to their legislatures or publics and say, look, we're recognized. We don't old court, the United States Supreme Court. They understand what we do. We recognize what they do. They recognize what we do. I said, that helps them a little bit. He said, fine. He said, Write them a letter. <laughs> What's driving it? Well, this is what I think the connection is. I think the reason, this is just my own view, that it's become so uh, salient an issue is because the issue has arisen primarily in cases involving the death penalty and gay rights. And I say those are special, particularly the death penalty, because it says in the Constitution when we're considering that, it has a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishments. Unusual in the United States, unusual in the world. Thomas Jefferson and uh, Madison and Hamilton did not say. So there's an argument about that. You start arguing about the death penalty and you will discover emotions rise. So I think this might be a spill over there. But regardless, I think there's something deeper. Because many, 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 many other cases, nobody, not Justice Scalia, not anyone in the court, denies you have to look, you should look to foreign opinions when you're trying to interpret a treaty, for example. 
And there are many other cases, such as cases involving the scope or reach of even mundane subjects, antitrust law, securities law, where, of course, you have to look to what other people do. Nobody denies that. Uh, but uh, what's moving the congressman? And why is this so salient politically? My own opinion? Uh, because uh, people are concerned that the more we consult with courts from abroad or institutions from abroad or look to abroad, it will partly be the same old group of slightly left-wing people consulting with each other. Uh, or, more importantly, what will happen is a watering down of our American values. So I say, ah, that's what's worrying you. Watering down of our American values. Oh, that's a good point. I don't deny that problem. But the reason I write this in part to show you what's going on is that I hope by the time you read it, and I hope you do, you will come to the conclusion, which is mine, that the best way to preserve our American values is to know what's going on abroad and participate. Because the major problems are international in scope, and major solutions have to, in part at least, be international in scope, and if we do not participate and learn, the world will go on without us, and uh, we will have less influence than we would otherwise. So working out the relationships of law and taking into account what goes on elsewhere is part of an effort to preserve what we've come to cherish, which is our own values. And see if you don't agree with me. Maybe he will. <laughs> uh, but that's a major motive, and that's what I see the connection is. Can I follow up? Because I had exactly the same reflexive response to the book reviews, which is that they were trying to mash it into this smaller argument about citing foreign law. And I think you deal with it in three pages and say exactly what you just said. We should cite foreign law because it's there. But, but I, I think that the other thing that the book reviews were a little bit misleading about, Justice Breyer, is the extent to which this is a normative book. And by that I mean, this is not you saying we should be enmeshed in a conversation with the world and our court needs to be global and, and bigger in scope because it seems to me that this is a purely descriptive book. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is we are. This is the status quo. And that it's not, as you say, because of the nature of the cases we take, it's the nature of the world we live in, mm -hmm. that we are deeply, deeply engaged in this. And so to the extent that there's a normative part of the book, I feel as though what you're trying to say is given that this is the world we live in, here's how we're going to do it. Is that well, fair? Is that's, that a, that's what I think exactly right. We go to the normative part, but that is how I do things. If I think probably it's a partly style, partly just, but I think that a position that I'm taking in the court is completely correct. Sometimes I think it's only partly correct. But, but regardless, those I think it's right, really right. And the others are wrong. I'm not going to say how right I am. First, nobody will believe that. <laughs> the, the way I think you, you persuade somebody is you say, but don't you see, it's this and this and this. And if I'm going to be really mean, my own style is to try to write it in a way that a child of two would have to agree. See, I'm just telling you the facts. That used to be the program. Not all of us are old enough to remember that. But uh, what was it? It was Sergeant Joe Friday. What? Dragnet. That was it. He'd say, just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. And that, that is what I've tried to do. For example, uh, look, 
Uh, protecting civil liberties in time of war is not a new problem. Uh, but I would like to show you where we are. <coughs> and to do that, I have to go back and do some history. I mean, Cicero, 2,000 years or so ago, said, he said, in, in, basically, I translated it as, when the cannons roar, the laws fall silent. And somebody pointed out the Romans didn't have cannons. <laughs> so I said, okay. Uh, my point's still the same. He's saying, when, in time of war, the laws fall silent. That was pretty much how American courts acted for a very long time. Abraham Lincoln, after all, his secretary of, of state, Seward, had a bell on his desk, and he called in the British ambassador. So I push this bell, I can have anyone I want in New York State thrown into prison. I push it twice, anyone I want in Indiana. He said, tell me, does the Queen of England have such power? Of course, you can understand Lincoln, but he was up against a big problem. But the courts said, no, oh, I'm wrong. The courts did say something after the war was over, with a couple of exceptions, which didn't get too far. After the war was over. Tens of thousands of people imprisoned who weren't, who weren't uh, combatants. Go to World War I, and you'll see Woodrow Wilson doing about the same thing, with free speech, with all kinds of Go to World War II, you will see 70,000 American citizens of Japanese origin taken from their homes in California and put into camps. For what reason? No good reason. By the time that case came up to the Supreme Court in 1944, differently from 1942, where people were genuinely worried about invasions of San Francisco, nobody was. Nobody was worried about an invasion from Japan. And when the Justice Department lawyers looked back into the rationale for supporting the removal, by the way, J. Edgar Hoover being the leading opponent, Earl Warren being one of the leading supporters. He later said it was uh, one of the worst things he ever did, but he supported it. For what reasons, what evidence? They looked at this and they said uh, there was no evidence. None. I mean, General DeWitt said, well, there are 743 signals that were sent offshore to Japanese submarines. Hurling and Ennis in 1944, and the Department of Justice called in the FCC and said, let's look at that. They came back two weeks later with a pile like this and said, not one. What were those 743 instances? Well, they were all things like uh, buck privates working the machinery they didn't know how to work. Not one. So those two lawyers said, we're not signing the brief. And then they worked out a compromise in the brief, so a footnote that nobody could understand, but which really said, we don't believe the Defense Department. And um, what's his name? Uh, Herbert J. Wexler was the one who worked out a compromise, that compromise, and got them to sign the brief. So you could say, well, the Supreme Court gets the Korematsu case. That was the case. I once met Korematsu. He was a great guy. He was very feisty. He was uh, a friend of our next-door neighbor in Cambridge whose father had been Ernie Bezig, uh, the ACLU lawyer in San Francisco. He used to play poker with my father. And the ACLU wouldn't support him in that case at the beginning. He represents Korematsu. 
Korematsu says, but I'm going to win. I'm an American. There's no evidence. What? What? He lost. He lost six to three. So for a while, I thought, well, they didn't understand the footnote. Then I read the transcript. Hmm. What's his name? Who was uh, uh, a well-known lawyer here who was representing Japanese American Defense League. He pointed out that footnote and said, read it. Six to three. And the six, Black, Douglas, Frankfurter, the people who were on the, certainly the right, they, they decided Brown versus Board. The others were Murphy, uh, dissented, good. And uh, Jackson and Roberts, very interesting. And uh, why? Well, I had thought the reason must be this. It must be, because this is generally viewed as one of the worst cases in the U.S. reports. It must be that the justices in the majority thought, well, somebody has to run this war. Roosevelt or us? And uh, they said, we can't. Guess Roosevelt has to. Okay, we'll uphold it. Now, I thought I'd made that up, you know, that it seemed like the best inference. And uh, two weeks ago, I met a historian who said he'd gotten a hold of Black's notes from the conference, and that is exactly what Black said. Wow. Huh. It's not in the book, because I didn't know it. But uh, it was a logical inference. You see? And uh, so, now, what happens? I mean, we have that case on the books. During Korean War, we have steel seizure. And steel seizure, Jackson gets up and says, no, the president has gone too far. And that's the majority. The majority say he's gone too far. Why? Maybe they're reacting against Korematsu. Maybe they're saying, we think Roosevelt just goes too far and we can take that out against Truman. He's less popular. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what they said. Then you look to the Guantanamo cases, and the Guantanamo cases say um, four cases, four detainees, every one of them wins. The president loses. Congress passes a law saying those detainees who are enemy combatants, and an enemy combatant, nobody, den oh, some deny it, but not many, can be held an enemy combatant during a time of shooting war when you are in the shooting war. And those were the detainees at that time. At least you can hold them. But Congress passed a law saying they can't get to court. No, that's struck down. And the key, since they won each of those cases, and they weren't popular people. I mean, uh, Ben Laden's chauffeur is not a popular person uh, in the United States. Uh, Sandra O'Connor writes, Even in time of war, the Constitution does not write to the president a blank check to run over civil liberties, traditional civil liberties. I signed that. It's easy to sign that. It only becomes hard when you ask the obvious next question. Very well, what kind of check does it write? And there we are. And that's a long wind-up for a very short pitch. So <laughs> that long wind-up you've heard, and the very short pitch is simply, that's where we are now. What kind of check? You want to say no check for our criticisms? M many criticize those Guantanamo opinions. Some saying we interfered with the president. To those, I say you want Guantanamo. What do you want? You, you want Korematsu? Is that what you want back? No review of any kind? 
Then the civil liberties side says, well, well why didn't you write a little bit more uh, explaining uh, what they can and cannot do? Why are you so elliptical? Why is it so narrow? To which I say, why didn't we write more? I know why I didn't, because I don't know the answer. That's why. Because I don't know the answer more. And so there we are. That. Now, how do you want to solve the next case that's coming up? And isn't it a good idea that maybe we know something about national security before we start getting out there pronouncing on what the right balance is between the national security and the civil liberties? And maybe it's even a good idea, since we're not the only ones to face this problem, that we learn something about how other countries are facing the problems, too, and how it works out there. In other words, a little bit of empirical experience may help get better decisions unless you want to draw withdraw entirely, in which case there lies Korematsu, or in which case you, or, or if you want just arbitrary decisions, and then what happens to the security of the country? All right, you see? So, I'm drawing a problem. So I want to push you a little bit on the relationship between the first section of the book, which deals with these national security and civil liberties balance matters, and the subsequent section of the books, sections of the book, which deal with respectively treaty interpretation and, and U.S. statutory interpretation in, act, in, in interaction with, with the rest of the world. So the broad thesis that we can't avoid as a descriptive matter that we are engaged with the rest of the legal world is, I think, overpowering in the second two sections that, you know, yeah, when you're, when you're interpreting treaties, other countries' practices, interpretations of those treaties, institutions really, really matters. And you make a really powerful case that our statutory interpretations are pervasively affected now in certain areas by, by looking overseas, and inevitably so. But I read the, 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 the first third of the book, and I said, wait a minute. I could tell that you can tell this story, and we conventionally have told this story, without reference to the broad thesis of that, this book. We've told it as a separation of powers story. President gets to... Uh, strong, the court has reined him back, the court has gotten more aggressive about doing so uh, as, as uh, the imperial presidency has become more imperial. Um, and so my question is, why should we think about this first section as part of this story? It doesn't involve foreign law or legal institutions. It doesn't involve... It, it involves a much older struggle. The only foreign document, really, that we end up talking about in these cases is a 100-year-old lease of a plot of land in Cuba. Um, and so my question is, does, is this first section really an example of the thesis, or is it a graft of a larger uh, of a different debate, that is the debate of, between, you know, of how president, powerful the president should be in wartime onto a sort of globalization discussion? Very good question, which my publisher asked the editor <laughs> when I sent him the manuscript. <laughs> and uh, my response is, is uh, what I told him and what I hope is there. Uh, the uh, the last part, I talk about what Israel does, I talk about what uh, Britain does and what some other countries do. But the, I, uh, this is uh, what I'd like to appear 
Of course, it is an old debate, and it's an old, in a sense, unresolved debate. And the, the key to that debate is really Jackson, who says in the Steele seizure case, uh, if you want to find out what the founders thought about this presidential power, the scope of it, the limitations upon it, and he means, I think, precedent as well, you'll discover there are very few indications that it's like trying to, Joseph, trying to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. So you're not starting out where you're going to resolve this thing by precedent, by, by uh, what the, Hamilton said or somebody else said. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so I want to show the nature of the problem. And I wanted to go into, in some depth, the steel seizure case. And the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted people not to view it in those abstract terms of presidential power versus the court. I wanted them to see what the problem was from the point of view of the president. And I wanted them to see what the problem was from the point of view of the judges. And you catch a sentence here where in conference somebody says, or in the oral argument to Jackson, that you were just saying you were attorney general, and you said the president had all these kinds of powers, and now you're saying he doesn't. He says, that was then and this is now. I was attorney general then, and now I'm on the court. You say? And that's uh, uh, rather different. But when you get into that, I think, and I hope people would come away with a sense of the importance of knowing the practicalities of the situation, a sense of knowing what is possible to do and what likely consequences there are, which you will never know for certain. You may get a glimmer. And that's why I say uh, 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 knowing something about what the national security problem is, and today that problem is international. I say knowing something about what other countries do, and that's because maybe uh, you can see some, from that some things that you might do or might not do or might modify and do. In other words, I'm leaving it up to the reader to make that connection. I'll bring him up to speed. And then I'll say, now look, here's today's problem, which is an international one. And he will, if he's, you know, he's going to have to start thinking. Start thinking, all right, what do we do about this? How do we do it? How do we get the information? Where does it come from? Let's discuss that, and let's figure out how the court might do it better than worse. All right, once you've read that, it's actually, in a sense, easier, in a sense, harder. You're absolutely ready for instances where you can plunge into the middle of it, where we're looking to put what goes on abroad all the time, and it's obvious that you have to. I mean, that's uh, Kurt saying, you know, uh, who's uh, this is in the commerce area. Uh, but uh, uh, Supong Kurtzang, he's a Thai student. He's up in uh, uh, Cornell. He discovers his textbooks, identical textbooks, identical, in English, sold in Bangkok for a much lower price. So he writes to his parents and says, send me a few. They sent a lot more than a few. Uh, he began to sell them. Publisher got annoyed, brought a lawsuit. Can they do it? Yes or no? It depends on like six technical words in a very technical copyright statute. Nobody knows what they mean. I mean, they're, well, they're pretty obscure. So I go into my office, I find a stack of briefs like this. From where? All over the place. Lawyers in Asia, lawyers in Europe, governments of different countries. I said, how, how, in this technical case, why are there all these briefs? 
And I begin to get an answer as I read along, because one of them tells us copyright today is not simply a question of books or even books, films, and, and uh, music. Uh, copy, buy an automobile. Uh, software. Copyrighted. Go into any store you want. You will see labels on products. Copyrighted. And it says uh, the answer to this case, we think, these are retailers saying this, is going to affect $3.2 trillion worth of commerce. All right? And to get that answer right, I think you have to know uh, what's going on elsewhere, i.e., how other countries handle copyright, etc. Or an antitrust case. You know where vitamin distributor in Ecuador wants to sue a member of a cartel, manufacturer, Holland, brings the lawsuit in New York. Why New York? Well, maybe he had no vitamins, so he was so weak he couldn't get to Holland. <laughs> Possible. The other possibility is called treble damages and attorney's fees. Does he have the right to do it under the statute? I don't think that you can answer that question properly without knowing how the European cartel authority works and what interpretations will and what interpretations will not interfere with their efforts to attain common objectives. And they filed briefs telling us those things. Good, that's today's world, and it's right. And it's where a legal term called comedy, which used to mean don't unnecessarily interfere with others, now, I think more and more means try to get the laws of other nations in similar areas to work harmoniously with ours and ours to work harmoniously with them. And there are a lot of cases, securities, antitrust, copyright, others, where you have to work that out. And treaties? We're three times interpreting treaties having to do with abduction of children. That's a tough, tough job for a family judge who is a state court judge who has one of the toughest, toughest jobs in the system. Uh, Eddie Ginsburg, who had that in, in uh, uh, Cambridge, used to say he'd tell me that he tells the people in front of him when they're fighting, solve it yourselves, because if you can, you'll do whatever is, you'll do a lot better than what I have to do. Okay. Tough job. You know who knows least about it? Federal judges. Supreme Court least of all. So why are we trying to solve a case, uh, words that are obscure and difficult and ambiguous, where on one side are groups of people who are absolutely determined to prevent abduction, and on the other side, groups of people are absolutely determined to fight spousal abuse, which often leads to abduction. Why are we doing this? The answer is because it's in a treaty. And why is it in a treaty? Because today, marriage is more and more a question. Crosses frontiers, crosses boundary lines. And there we are. That's the world. And there are ways we might be able to do better or less well, etc., some of which are discussed. All right, is that beginning to answer your yep. question? Um, I want to ask you about something that's not in your book. And you can just say, it's the next book, Dahlia. And then Ben will ask a question. But. Um, I, I think that you talk about speech a little bit when you talk toward the end of the book about proportionality, but I, I've always thought of you as someone who thinks really, really hard 
about sort of the intersection of free speech and uh, globalization and terrorism. And I remember in 2010 when you uh, were worried about Quran burning and you said to George Stephanopoulos, oh, you know, maybe the whole world is starting to look like a crowded theater and a lot of speech purists like myself said, oh my God, no, the whole world can't be a crowded theater, but people die in Pakistan when we burn Qurans here. And I think that was your point. And I think your point has been, and in this sense, I think you've been out a little bit out ahead of some of your colleagues, thinking about how we're going to reinterpret the way we think about speech when ISIS is throwing up instructional videos uh, that everybody can get access to. And this is something, in some ways, we're now having this conversation this month. You know, Eric Posner, people who, who are very serious thinkers are saying we need to revisit how we protect speech because there is no longer a crowded theater. It's the whole world. I don't know if uh, that inflects on how you think about the intersection of the law and the world. I don't know if it's something that you feel that you can comment on, but I, that's the chapter of this book that I feel like you've thought very hard about and perhaps have not put into words here. I did say some things about it, and I've said more about it in opinions. And the one place that I shouldn't have said anything about it was with George Stephanopoulos. <laughs> it really proves don't try to show how clever you are. It does not work. I mean, I, I thought he did ask that question about the man who was burning the Koran at that time. And I thought, oh, I have such a good answer. I'm going to say, well, of course, people have freedom of speech, don't they? But you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, can you? And I thought, that's perfect, because nobody knows what that means. <laughs> and I've sort of answered the question, no, no. Uh, the, the blogs pick that up, and half of them think, oh, he hates free speech, and the other half think he wants to burn everything up, or I don't know what they think. <laughs> but it was not a good question to answer publicly. It just wasn't. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, too complicated, and it is too close to the hearts of many Americans, and it should be. Uh, so there are problems that I've raised, and 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 the question, if I say if I say there's a, a big difference within the courts, sometimes I suppose I'm more on the some people are more on the side of what I consider uh, to be turning it into absolute rules. This rule, then there's a sub rule, then there's the other rule over there. I don't think that works. I probably am in many cases I'm more uh, with Frankfurter on this probably that there's a lot of balancing that has to go on no matter whether you pretend it's a rule or not a rule you're actually doing a lot of balancing and that's what I put into this book now I can only add because you'd like me to add something more than that is since cases like this may well come up uh, the way the court works best in, 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 in my own opinion uh, is in Tocqueville said this or something like it uh, is uh, people in the country ha have a way of dealing with new problems. Uh, the first thing Tocqueville says, like, say, privacy and, and the Internet and all these difficult kinds of problems that change the notion of traditional privacy, the first thing they do, says Tocqueville, is they start to shout at each other. <laughs> now, he doesn't, he says he calls it the clamor, but really he means it's okay. Maybe it's not always polite, and it should be, but they, they start talking about it from every point of view. And you get talk at universities, you get it in the newspapers, you get it in magazines, you get it in trade associations, the police associations have a view, civil libertarians have a view, and they start talking and debating, and then they might 
try passing laws, perhaps in the form of administrative rulings, uh, perhaps in uh, hearings uh, in uh, local legislatures or in Congress, and out of those might come administrative rulings that you change because you see they didn't work very well, and uh, they'll start moving around, and eventually people will write laws and maybe change them and so forth. But when there's been discussion and when there has been debate, and that, when that has eventuated in a law, and then it comes to the court. For us to say, is what you've decided within the boundaries, and they're often very broad boundaries, of the document, with this document, it sets frontiers beyond which you cannot go. I think we do a better job of answering the question. When you unleash us at the beginning, and we have to decide it on, uh, you say, I, I think we do a less good job. I can, that's not always true. Uh, but I prefer approaching a problem when other people have thought about it first. And then I can see more easily what the sides are. And as I say, you don't always have the luxury of doing that. Uh, but where you can do it, it, uh, it is, uh, I think, likely to lead to a better solution. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me.
as this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So we're going to start taking audience questions. As you signal me, I will um, uh, direct the microphone your way. While we do that, I just want to pose one more question myself. What, um, you know, as, as the audience can see this is a much larger discussion than the narrow should we should we cite foreign law debate um, my question is to is which parts of the descriptive thesis that you've outlined are matters of common ground between you and your colleagues and which parts are actually disputed i'm, I'm not i'm not looking for you know who thinks what? But 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 I mean, how much of what you've laid out in this book would other members of the court say? Yeah, that's right. That's that's the new world we face. We 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 pose different answers to those questions. But yes, Justice Breyer has accurately described the problem that the court faces in the world. And to what extent would they say no on this point? there really is no in the context of the world. There's just U.S. statutory law. There's just the Constitution. Um, and, you know, he's, he's imagining uh, an, an interconnected web that doesn't, in fact, or should not, in fact, affect the way we do our jobs. Well, I suspect I could get the greatest unanimity uh, on treaties because uh, uh, everyone's written that you have to look to other countries to interpret a treaty. And on the questions that we were discussing about business, like uh, the uh, uh, 
securities and antitrust. Well, Justice Scalia wrote the opinions, and he usually say takes the other view. And uh, I just joined on to what he was saying and maybe added a few things. There wasn't much disagreement about that. Uh, he, he might disagree as to the overall importance of it. I don't know. I'm not sure. I've never had that discussion with him. Uh, I'd say where you're likely to get the most disagreement is on the civil liberties versus, uh, uh, versus security uh, uh, on the ground that, well, that we're not going to learn much from abroad. And, and I can't prove that we will. I, I have a, uh, that's why I said, Lita, you know, I, I, it's, not, it's not booting the question down the road. I, I'm trying deliberately to provoke conversation. Uh, the way we solve things in the legal profession has traditionally been the judges say something. The uh, professors all say why it's wrong. That's good. That's their job. They can, they can, they can uh, compare it with other things that have been said on the past, and they can say this would work better, this would work better. And the lawyers, reading what the professors write and leading the opinions, can take what's useful for the case, and, and, and we will get back in front of us in different form uh, the thought of quite a few people on this kind of issue. And, and it's at least that kind of discussion that I think is important here. And, and since I'm out there in the world that's doing it at the court, I, I thought perhaps it would help to provoke that kind of discussion by writing this, writing this book. So I will say that, that you know, when, when you flip the, the, the mirror around, mm -hmm. your point in other countries is utterly uncontroversial. So I was, I was also in, in a, in a mm -hmm. frontline situation with respect to this recently. I was in Israel and wrote an article comparing U.S. versus Israeli military attitudes toward proportionality in targeting. And I almost immediately after publishing the article got a call from the IDF legal staff asking me to come talk about this, um, this exact disparity, because the question is, could you, what could you learn from, you know, American practice in this area and there was there was simply no conversation about whether it was appropriate to look at that question or how valuable um, or, or how valuable it would be so I, I I mean I do think when you're when you when you approach the the, the the civil liberties wartime question from the point of view of do other countries think our law is worth looking at there's just a, there's no doubt that the answer to that question is yes no, but wait because let's take what I think is likely to be, if it's just a guess, if you were to go five, ten years into the future, would be one of the most important constitutional questions. And that stems from the fact that Professor Cassese had his students go out and look across the world how many international organizations are there. International organizations like little bureaucracies uh, created by treaty or by executive agreement or by something else. They used to all just be treaties, say, you do this, I do that. Ah, that's not what they are now. Some of them set up the United Nations. Others set up some other bureaucracy. And how many do you think there are that set up some bureaucracy that can, in fact, make rules that rules in practice bind citizens of more than one nation? Now, that sometimes comes as a surprise. How many think there are more than 100? More than 500? More than 1,000? More than 2,000. All right. There are more than 2,000. Yeah. And we belong to several hundred. I mean, it isn't just the UN. 
It's also, uh, let's try the uh, International Bluefin Whale Commission. Or if you look, what about the International Olive Oil Council? I like that one. Um, and uh, they're all over the place. All over the place. International Civil Aviation Authority. Oh, it doesn't bind us. It doesn't try flying and violating one of its rules. Uh, uh, they're all over the place. And uh, we haven't burned. Uh, meetings of bankers to set all kinds of rules in the United States to which meetings attend members of the SEC staff. Now, they can come back and they can say, oh, we're now promulgating this proposed rule uh, for your comment. But wait a minute, they really decided that in Bern. And who was present in Bern? The bankers. The public? No. Regulators? Yeah. And uh, th there are rules and laws all over the place. All, oh, who, who probably makes the rules that affect your daily life the most? The SEC or ICON? ICON is the organization, headquarters in Los Angeles, some kind of corporation that makes all the rules for the Internet. Hmm. 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 And what is the status of those rules? And how does the public ban input? And how do you, in fact, how do you, in fact, uh, square the delegation of authority that's being given to these entities with an Article One that says the legislative power of the United States shall be in a Congress of the United States, not the Bluefin Oil Committee, whatever. You see? Similar problem to what arose at the time of the 30s when we had uh, the creation of, internet, of uh, agencies. What were those? Were they in the Constitution? Well, if we can't resolve that problem, and it's a, I mean, it may come up in many different forms, but if the answer is you can't do it, how do we solve the world's problems? Cooperation is a necessity. And if the answer is do as much as you want, what happens to Article One and the constitutional delegation of authority? I mean, there may be ways of working this out. It may be fine. I just sort of reacted. You're saying that they don't have these problems in Europe. They don't. They don't. They just had the problem before the constitutional court of Germany about the extent to which the EU treaty signed by Germany was valid in light of a constitution that has certain reserve powers to the states, the lander. And they've had that same question in Italy. And they've had that same question in Austria. And every court has decided that the same way, namely that the, the government could not give all the powers away to the EU. They're always something they can't give. Now, they've always decided in the case in front of them that it was all right to give those powers. <laughs> but nonetheless, one after another. And you say, France, oh, no problem. No problem. France just has a state of urgency where it derogated from the uh, Strasbourg Convention. Ah, now let's imagine why they might have done that. Perhaps they did not have this great respect for the laws of other nations that you might expect or not expect. But nonetheless, that's what they did. And uh, so it's uh, uh, to what extent the problem of how you reconcile. Um, and I didn't notice in any of the English decisions anyone mentioning how Israel dealt with the problem. The Israelis are different because they have uh, Avram Barak, who said everything in the world is always relevant. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, uh, it's not a problem, I don't think, that is unique to us, the problem of how, for example, 
we're going to reconcile the security needs and civil liberties is something not only a lot of people have, but in respect to which a lot of different nations have not yet worked out the system or systems through which they are going to resolve these tensions and, and, and difficulties. So we're going to go to questions from the audience. I have a few uh, uh, things to say in advance, please. Again, first, wait for the microphone. Uh, second, um, please tell us who you are and what organizations you're from, if, if that's relevant. Uh, and number three, uh, you know, Justice Breyer is a very, very uh, uh, gentlemanly man. I am not. Um, there's always somebody in the audience who thinks they're going to get him to say how, the, you know, how he's going to vote in the blank case that's big this year. Don't try it. You're, you're not, not going to fool anybody, and I will cut you off with a shocking lack of due process. Um, so, uh, sir. Steve Luckett, I work and study here in the city. Thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate it. I actually did think about trying to trip up Justice Breyer, but... Uh, <laughs> See, it's, a, it's always I, worth the I, warning. I um, Justice Breyer, you I'll make them three quick ones. You were recently in France. Could you give us your sense of the um, greater um, crackdown on civil liberties to an extent uh, pushed out by that legislature? That's the first question. The second is, what influence uh, has uh, Justice Goldberg and Senator Kennedy had on your work on the court? And uh, the third is Bush v. Gore's on page 280 for anyone who's interested. Um, I covered that as a young news producer. I wondered, do you hear the protests outside on either side of the cases that you're on? And thanks. Um, as to the first, what's going on in France, I don't know more than you if you read the newspapers there. I haven't been there for a while. I know they're having these kinds of problems, so I, but I don't have anything specific to comment about it that I haven't already. In, in respect to the, uh, um, um, which was the second? It was the, oh, Justice, yeah. I would say so. Justice Goldberg was very practical. We love Justice Goldberg. I mean, he had two clerks at that time. He was wonderful. That's great. He used to take us to lunch, of course. All the clerks loved that. The boss takes you to lunch. And, uh, but he was happiest, uh, I would say, at the Labor Department. He was an activist. He liked to get things done. He was the Labor Secretary for a few hours before he set up a minimum wage committee, an end discrimination committee, a do this committee, and a do that committee. And he really couldn't do that at the court. He liked the court. It was fine. It was fine. But uh, this was Goldberg. He's sitting in his office one, or at home one night, and uh, 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 <laughs> he sees on television there's a terrible snowstorm, and they need medicine somewhere, and a hospital which they couldn't get. And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I know the general who runs Fort Meade or whatever it was. And he calls him on the phone. He says, General, I have a great idea for you. And that's Kennedy, too. For you. Why don't you take one of your machines and get the medicine there? You'll be on television. You'll save the people. It'll be fabulous. And he did. <laughs> I just had to. Kennedy, sort of like that in a way. The way you compromise, I wrote on a cup, my, my law clerks gave it to me, the six things I learned from Kennedy. First, of course, is the best is the enemy of the good. Absolutely. Never try for the best. Like, the good is good enough. <laughs> and the second thing, which, is, uh, which, I, which uh, I, I, I thought was the way you compromise, what a good idea you have. <laughs> you sit there and listen. Until you hear that person who's totally against you say something, oh, I can get that one. What a good idea you have. And then when it comes time, because it went through, uh, 
you push that person out in front of the television cameras so that his constituents see he did a good thing and he'll come back and try to help in the future. Great. And I learned from him uh, so many things. I mean, so many things. Uh, uh, credit? Don't try to get all the credit. Please. I mean, he's not averse to getting credit. No politician could be. But credit? Don't worry about it. It's a weapon. Use it to get your end. Now, if the thing succeeds, there will be plenty of credit to go around. If it doesn't succeed, who wants the credit? <laughs> you see? And uh, I, I loved working there. I loved working for Arthur Goldberg. I loved working for Ted Kennedy. I mean, I, it was, uh, that was another thing that Kennedy had, and Goldberg, too, to a degree, but Kennedy really had it. You know, we're out there to help. Help who? Help him. <laughs> help yourselves. And help people who need help. And do it with a little bit of lightness of tone. Don't take yourself too seriously. When I would come in in the morning, I just loved to go in there because uh, it's going to be interesting and fun, and we may get something accomplished. Ma'am? Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. Um, I know that you've got a lot um, of cases that you could hear. Now, we won't talk about a, one that could be fast-tracked, but when you have to decide what cases, do you just sit around and say, okay, we have to do a gay rights case, we've got to do a civil rights case? When you make those decisions, um, not some that are, like, um, super speedy that have to be expedited, but just how that process, can you just give some insight sure. to regular people? Sure, very and, good and, question. And can I just add to that question, how does that relate? Relate to given given that your docket is discretionary, um, you could choose to have more or fewer cases that situate the court in the world or define these parameters. To what extent is that a legitimate consideration? That you know, hey, we want through the aggregate docket to do more work in this situating the court in the world area, or we want to stick our head in the sand and do as little as possible. I mean, is there a connection between? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, the answer, you're, you'll see. The, the, the answer to your question is a very good question. I get asked that a lot. I'll come back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the two questions I get the most, first yours, because people generally aren't connected with the court and so forth. What they think is we sit around and we say, oh, what fun it would be to do something. <laughs> you, know, or, or, you know, we may have a perverted sense of what's fun, but not that. <laughs> I think that's, that's what we're doing. And the other is, isn't it all really politics? Aren't you a JV politician, junior varsity? And uh, as to the first question, which, which you've asked, uh, Taft, uh, who was president of the United States uh, and then uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, gave the best answer. He said, we are not here to correct errors. Uh, everyone who has his case here, and there are probably about 8,000 a year, that ask us to hear their case. Everyone has already had a trial, an appeal, and maybe two or three appeals. There's no need for a fourth appeal. And why would you get it right? With the, you know, they're just too many. They're good judges. They'll get it right. Well, then why are we here? He said, the reason that you're here, first and foremost, is to create a uniform federal law. Uh, unlike other federal courts, we don't take state laws. Most laws in this country are made in states, 95%. Family, business, crime, almost everything. We're about this, made in Congress. Congress may get you to think that it's the most important. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. 
But anyway, we're only dealing with them. And suppose the lower court judges have come to different conclusions as to the meaning or application of the same words, whether it's in the federal tax statute or whether it's in the Constitution. Different interpretations? Do they need us? Yes. The law isn't uniform. Now suppose they've come to all the same conclusion. Do they need us? Why? They're good judges. No need. So the primary criteria is just what I've told you. And that's why I can go through 150 a week. You see, reading the memos, the law clerks have written, and I can see what's the issue in this case. Is there a division on it? Not are they right or wrong. Now, that's not 100% of the story, because if, a, if, a, if a, uh, uh, a lower court judge holds a statute of Congress unconstitutional, we'll probably take it. And uh, uh, if it's some major thing that the country needs a uniform answer to quickly, we'll probably take it. But what I just told you at the beginning is about 95%. And those criteria are pretty much followed. It isn't sitting there. I don't sitting there thinking, oh, this would be a good one for that. Now, now, so you get the idea. It's much more mechanical than people think. After I go through my list of uh, my memos, 150 of them, whatever they are, and everybody else does the same on Friday, we're in our conference by ourselves. Any one of us can put anyone on for discussion. And maybe there'll be 10 or 12. And we'll go around the table. And we'll say briefly, it starts with the chief, and then it goes to Justice Scalia and Kennedy and uh, Thomas and Ginsburg and me and Alito and Sotomayor and Kagan. And uh, we say, uh, the chief usually says, I, I, well, I'm going to vote not to take this because, or I'm going to vote to take this because. And, and people will add their two cents worth pretty quickly. If there are four votes, it's taken. If not, it's not. If no one listed it, denied. And uh, if I hear something I didn't hear before, I can always say, hold it next week. And if I want it held next week, I go back, look it up, and write a memo. And if I really feel strongly, I write a dissent from the denial of cert. And I circulate it. And you only see, if you see them, if you only see the ones that have failed. Because I'm trying to convince my colleagues, and sometimes they do. And uh, so the, the, I think that system works pretty well. By the way, if we make a mistake and we deny a case that we should have taken, what will happen? Question? What? It'll come up again. You see? It'll come up again. And if it doesn't come up again, yes, the country didn't need us. <laughs> you see? I'll give you a rough outline. And that is pretty much how it works. <laughs> Well, I don't see it that way because I have enough to worry about. Now, now as, can, does, does the Ben's factors sometimes enter into my mind? Uh, well, it, it, it's conceivable in some marginal way where it's a close case. That's why I talk in terms of probably, never say never, et cetera. Can I, can I just ask one quick, quick question? Yeah. I, it's bugging me. Um, and that is just, uh, there's such an anxiety throughout this book, Justice Breyer, about the knowledge gap. And you just talked about getting stacks and stacks of amicus briefs from foreign countries. I wonder, does that, that's where you get your knowledge from, yes. right? That's, yes. and, and do all of your colleagues have that same sense that that's where we're going to learn this stuff? It's going to come from the briefs? Or is there a growing sense that we better Google this because there's a lot of oh, knowledge? Sometimes you can Google things. It depends on what they are. 
I mean, there are a lot of public things you can Google. I, I wouldn't try to Google some special argument that somebody doesn't have, but, but I, I want to know something that's a general fact. I might. One of the best things in a patent case was one of the lawyers got the idea of doing a diagram of an invention that moved. <laughs> and he put it on, uh, and he did it with the approval of the other lawyer, but they put it onto Google. And uh, we called it up, and I looked at it, oh! <laughs> so there are a lot of ways now you get information in front of the judge, and in the, the best thing in the, typically, and it's long been true, in the area of security, is that the lawyers uh, have a trial or a hearing before the judge, and they have two great questions they always ask. There's an infringement on traditional civil liberties. The lawyer will ask, why? Why? Why are you doing it? What's the need? And now a big area there is going to be, suppose the government says, we can't tell you. Well, can you tell the judge? Well, do you have to tell us? Well, how do we resolve that? There's a big area you can see. But the question, why, is a very important question. And the second question that they'll ask is, why not? In other words, if you had to do it, why couldn't you do it this less restrictive way? Uh, and the reason I, uh, well, anyway. Uh, and again, you run into the same information problems, and will that be sufficient, or will we need more? Or, uh, and in a lot of areas, traditionally, uh, when the government would file a brief saying this is the impact on foreign affairs, that's the end of it. Harder to say today whether that should be the end of it. Just listen to it. Give it weight, to what extent, where, when, why, etc. It's filled. Uh, I think it's filled with difficulty. And I think that, that's what I want to communicate. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hi, Jordan Engel, uh, natural born citizen. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of what areas of law that we could learn the least of from internationally, where we're the most distinct. Can you address either whatever answer comes to your mind on that, or the Second Amendment, which was one of my guesses. Well, no, my first reaction, of course, but probably because of the cases we heard this week, is the law as it is related to American Indians. I'm not sure we have learned too much from other countries. Um, and it's a very complicated area of law. Uh, maybe we have, as, as, as I say that, I'm, I'm not certain uh, on the questions of sovereignty, of the reservations, and so forth. But we've had questions in that, in, in, in that area about Indian reservations and so forth. Oh, tough one. And uh, if you say, well, how did we look? Look, Abraham Lincoln, we've always learned things from other countries. Where did Abraham Lincoln learn his law? In the cabin, right? In front of the fireplace, right? What was he reading? Blackstone. Blackstone. Well done. And who did Blackstone quote all the time? Gets harder. Not Cicero. <laughs> Gets harder. Who did he quote all the time? What? Lord Cook. Lord Cook, who made the commercial law of England, and my professor, uh, uh, Ben Kaplan, said that the reason Anglo-American judges enjoy a degree of prestige in their countries is really because Lord Cook figured out how to create a set of commercial rules that made England the richest country in the world for many years. And where did Lord Cook get his information? At least some of it. 
the Edicts of Colbert from France. And I even began to try find one point. I found somebody who knew that Colbert took a certain amount of his material from the Arab scholars in Granada. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that would be pretty good if I could pin that one down. <laughs> but, but in any case. Please. Hi. Um, my name is Anna, a naturalized citizen. Um, I was wondering, you talked about uh, looking at decisions of other courts. And common law is a tradition that's delineated in this country by a constitution. So does the practice of looking at um, decisions of other courts kind of erode the principle of a nationalized tradition of common law? And do you see that eroding in the future and giving way to a different type of law? Well, that's, that's I think, what some people are worried about. And I, and I don't think it has to erode. After all, uh, we've had a system for many, many years where people have looked to the laws of many different states when they work out commercial law. And even without the United States Supreme Court, in areas of state commercial law, uh, they look to each other's laws. And they were able to create a uniform commercial code, partly with the aid of the uniform, uh, the uniform uh, uh, code commissioners. There are many ways of trying to create a uniform law where that's necessary. And part of it involves looking to each other and uh, we wouldn't say that the Uniform Commercial Code is some unfortunate development. Uh, I think we'd say it's a very fortunate development. And to what extent did it change the law of Utah? I don't really know. But I mean, there are many ways of looking to these things. And I'm not suggesting one in entirely. And, and what I want to show when I stop there is that I don't think engaging in this activity is going to uh, undermine basic American values. I think, by and large, it will help preserve it, and, and most of all, uh, it will be the perhaps one practical way to increase the likelihood that the great problems are improved in their solution through a rule of law itself, which is the Fifth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, that than which there is no basic, more basic part of American law. But you go one step further in the book, sometimes subtextually and sometimes quite explicitly, which is that you argue that given a statutory regime that could reasonably be interpreted in way X or way Y, there is something desirable about choosing a statutory interpretation that makes the international system not work worse or work better, that, that that tends to harmonize American law with other countries' law and tends to respect other countries' sovereignty um, over matters that, um, you know, and my, I guess that sounds all correct to me. Um, and yet I can imagine the argument in response that says, um, wait a minute, when did it become a, a, a canon of, of, of statutory interpretation to make other countries' laws work better? And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in, in um, how, how you respond to the idea that it really isn't the job of the American legal system to improve the global functioning of law elsewhere. Well, the examples I give 
which are really startling examples, by the way. I mean, I think well, like, I didn't want to give examples that prove the contrary. Because, <laughs> no, that isn't quite true because I think maybe I maybe I have given one that does, but but uh, uh, you can't just pick your friends. But the 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 uh, uh, antitrust, right? Securities, uh, copyright, and ATS, the alien. Alien Tort Statute. That, that's the one that's more controversial. The 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 uh, re, you say when did it happen that we instead of just trying as in Timberlane, interesting enough, an old antitrust case that used to be for the if there are any antitrust uh, I don't know if there are any antitrust lawyers here. It was a small group, like administrative lawyers. I used to belong to that group. I used to say we're a small group, but. We love it. <laughs> the, 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 the fact is that uh, it, we have a very strong antitrust policy. We certainly always had when I was teaching it and before and worked in the department. It's a very important part of American law. And to allow this antitrust principle of, say, preventing agreements and restraint of trade uh, to develop further in uh, a world of commerce that is international I don't argue it. I assume it is very much in our interest. And similarly, uh, anti-fraud laws in the securities area that take into account the fact that Australia has a slightly different system aimed at the same thing to prevent its shareholders, to get those to work in common is, to me, a way of strengthening our own law in an international world and works better. So I think your question, when did this all change? Ah, I don't know, but not too long ago. Because you can find cases where the only meaning attached to the word comedy is the meaning of don't step on somebody else's toes where it doesn't have this idea of harmonization. Right. And it's used few and far between. So I'm saying, look what's happened. Look what's happened. And, is that and then I'm saying probably that will work out uh, for the better for us. Uh, because uh, we work in cooperation in trying to get these policies accomplished through many different enforcement uh, uh, agencies. That's good. That's fine. Uh, that's part of what law itself is about. If you see law itself, as I do, as simply one human mechanism designed to help people who live together in societies function more effectively, productively, and fairly. That's heart and sacks, and I never went further. But talk so about, that's, that's what talk it's about. about ATS now. Uh, ATS is more controversial. ATS is uh, uh, the from, alien from tort your, statute. For those who don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dolly Phil Artiga, Dolly Phil Artiga uh, from Paraguay, shows up in New York in the 1970s, where she finds uh, a man from Paraguay who, in Paraguay, tortured her brother to death. And she also finds a statute that had hardly been used for uh, 180 years, the Alien Tort Statute, which says that an alien can sue in a federal district court for damages in tort for a violation of the law of nations. Well, what's that about? Probably that was in part about pirates. I mean, you found a pirate, you hanged him. Didn't matter where he came from. And if when you're hanging him upside down, coins fall out, give them to his victims. <laughs> and uh, 
so how do we apply this statute now? Who are today's pirates? And the court said she can bring her suit for torture. And she went back, even though she didn't collect the money because he was broke, but she still went back. And she said to Paraguay, I came to the United States trying to look that torturer in the eye, and I came away with so much more. Well, other people began to follow that statute, and there were a lot of them. Uh, and now the courts begin to have to answer these questions. Okay. Who are today's pirates? Mm -hmm. And uh, what happens if the country involved doesn't want you to get their pirates? For example, South Africa, who said, we don't want judges in New York to start giving damages against companies doing business here. We have our own method of dealing with apartheid. It's called truth and reconciliation. So stay out of it. And to what extent does the judge give weight to that? And how do we have a rule of decision that will, in fact, be a rule that could be used in other countries, even if they don't, but maybe the International Criminal Court's looking for rules. And you don't want a rule that everybody trying it differently is going to get all mixed up, and it'll happen, as we always think, uh, that everybody in other countries is going to go put Henry Kissinger in jail or something. I mean, uh, that, that, that's not the way it's supposed to work out. And there is no Supreme Court of the world in order to interpret this. So judges in our court or other American courts in applying this are going to have to think about how to universalize the interpretation or principle that they're using. Now here, some people think we just shouldn't get into that business. Forget it. Goodbye, Dolly Phil Artiga. But that isn't what the court said. But maybe it came close. And there are other people who think you can work out, you know, you can work out ways of doing this. And there is where there is a, there, there, there is a disagreement. Um, right in back of... of uh, Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. And Justice Breyer, I'm wondering what you think the advent of populism of both the left and the right, both in America and abroad, has on uh, the story you're talking about with globalization and the law. Uh, is it that it's uh, irrelevant because this is a discussion uh, within and between elites, uh, at least until President Trump or Sanders start appointing judges? Or is there some uh, infiltration in that regard? It's a discussion about judges and law. And so what is the relevance to this discussion about judges and law? Well, I thought the best comment for at least the last few years, until I got shown it was wrong, Paul Freund, years ago, in talking, great expert on the Supreme Court, and really talking about the New Deal Supreme Court and the changes that they made, he said, the court does not shift with the wind. It does not shade with the weather. But the climate, the long-run climate, hmm, that may have an impact. I think that's pretty good, because over the long run, different judges are named. That doesn't mean the judges are all deciding things on the basis of politics, because a judge is going to be named by a president who really does think that the law is what that president thinks. Well... Let's not be too specific, because if uh, you think that the president's going to appoint a person uh, who is going to agree with him on everything, uh, that president is in for a big disappointment. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt appointed Oliver Wendell Holmes. 
Within six months, I think, Holmes had decided to dissent in the Northern Securities case, a very important case politically, antitrust, at that time. And Roosevelt said, I could carve a judge with more backbone out of a banana. <laughs> but if you're talking about very general things, such as uh, what law is about or what the Constitution is about or how these principles in the Constitution relate to life in America, what the country is about, and how, how these old, perhaps long endurable principles apply to the world that's changing. A president may be luckier in getting somebody who has agreement with him on many of those basic jurisprudential points, and even there he might be mistaken. But that's the kind of thing. I mean, when I, when I came to the court, I thought, since I'd been in a federal court in Massachusetts, I'd had a lot of disagreements. And San Francisco isn't free of disagreements where I grew up. And, but I'd never seen disagreements like this, my God. And uh, I thought for a while, you know, everybody should agree with me. <laughs> uh, who's so right and so forth. But, but uh, I, I soon thought, that's not so. It's a big country. There are 320 million people just about, and they think a lot of different things. And uh, it's not so terrible that you have people of different basic philosophies, I'd say, which show up every so often, not all that often, 20% or 5-4, and maybe about half of those, it's the usual suspects. But uh, uh, still, it's not so terrible in a big country of people with lots of different views to have judges that have somewhat basic, different, basic uh, uh, jurisprudential approaches. So there we are, which is to say it might sometimes have some effect, but not except over a long term. Justice Breyer, it's on, I guess. My name is Charles Sullivan, and I'm with the organization CURE. Many years ago, we were involved with the U.S. Sentencing Commission when you were, Judge Wilkins, uh, yeah. started out and haven't talked to you since then, really. Um, I uh, chair or direct a international prison reform organization, and um, I also read your book, and there were three, uh, I think, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Dred Scott decision, and the Japanese decision case that you talked about were the three worst decisions that Supreme Court has made over the years. And uh, I know you're not open to other nominations, but we're seeing in the prison reform movement uh, the results of uh, Kansas versus Hendricks, or Hendricks versus Kansas, where we have uh, a civil commitment for people who have finished their criminal sentence. Uh, we have a situation in Minnesota where no one in 20 years has ever been released out of the 700 that are there civilly committed. Okay, uh, we need and, to bring this around to okay, a question, please. Uh, the question I have is, I, I don't think there was any international uh, background to that case. Uh, it seemed like it was unique, uh, that really no one w w knew what to do because a a person who was convicted of a sex offense said that he would be a danger if he was released. So we've got to come up with something. Well, there are a lot of different areas. A lot. Of, I mean, I'm sure that the look in every decision that's split, which is at least half of them, about half of them, there's somebody who thinks it's totally wrong. I mean, so, so not everybody can be right. 
and uh, uh, the, we just have a system where you follow the majority. And there are a lot of problems in the criminal justice system. I'm not going to disagree with you about that one. And uh, I've written some things years ago about the sentencing guidelines, which overall have made some improvements, and I'm afraid perhaps fewer than I'd hoped. <laughs> and uh, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's a long story. I think we're in the process of maybe seeing changes being made. You would know better than I. Are there, are um, there other areas of the law where you think... I didn't think it had much to do with international. I agree with you. I mean, where, where we should be looking to, you know, one of the, the questioners comments is that, you know, court decided that case with no sense of what other countries do with long-term well, well, commitments. The, the, well, well, I'm not just, I'm not arguing here. I'm trying to get examples here. And I think there'd be fewer than 20%, maybe fewer than 15% of the cases in a given year, where it seems pretty clear that you need need a sense of what uh, yeah, you need a sense doing. of what's going on elsewhere and there might be many other cases where it would be helpful i'm not saying that they're not and uh, the lawyers will probably point it out if they are and sometimes they will be and sometimes they won't so we're going to have we have time for one more question from the floor and then i'm going to ask uh dahlia to pose the last question uh right. gentlemen over way by the side whom i can't see uh, thank you. My name is Joseph. I'm a student at SICE across the street. Um, and to get the phrasing right, um, do you think that the, uh, the federalism revolution of the Rehnquist Court area um, has now entered a phase where liberals should favor blue state federalism as the sh focus shifts from state sovereign immunity um, to other aspects of the Commerce Clause where enhancing state power to experiment with policy innovations serves to advance a progressive agenda in uh, areas such as state labor, environmental, and health. Again, I'm not, not sure what I that don't know. The only, the only comment I can make is, is this is my own personal reading. I loved this years ago because I like irony to a certain degree. Uh, but, and this is irony in respect to liberals liking one constitutional kind of approach or provision and conservatives the other. And I happened to read in about the same period of time a book by a man called Ewald, which is very, very interesting, uh, the history of the Army McCarthy hearings. And he was a young lawyer attached to Fred Seaton, who before he became Eisenhower's Secretary of the Interior was Secretary of the Army. And they moved all the files of the people whom McCarthy was trying to investigate over to the White House. Why? So that McCarthy couldn't subpoena them. And at that time, all the liberals thought presidential privilege is the best thing we've ever heard of. <laughs> and I happened to be reading it at a time where Nixon was not going to give things to, to, the, to the committees over the Senate on the same kind of grounds, the presidential privilege. And surprise, surprise, the liberals seemed to think presidential privilege was the worst thing that they'd ever heard of in their life. So it's always hard to line up exactly with a political philosophy, how uh, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, legal principle is going to sort out and whether there'll be for more of it or less of it. And you're suggesting changes that may mean some shift in some uh, political directions, and I I'm not going to say anything about it because I really don't know. Dahlia, finish us up. Well, I, I, I want to circle back to what I think was undergirding Ben's question to you when he was talking about going to Israel and having it sort of be a given that what America does is relevant uh, to, to other courts. 
Um, because I, that flies a little bit in the face of what we hear, which is that we have this sort of waning influence in the world, that you know, other courts cite us less often than they used to, and that they're more interested in South Africa and the Canadian Constitution. So I know it's a part of your thesis that we want to be in this conversation. Uh, but is part of what animated the book the feeling that we are sliding out of an international conversation, or is that overstating it? In other words, are you... No, it's not part of the book. Okay. The, the uh, Israel is special because Iran Barak thinks you should support all kinds of things are relevant, that's, and that's how they've developed there. It isn't true necessarily in other countries. Uh, whether we're cited more or cited less by some other country is up to them. It's not up to us. And That's not work. my job. It doesn't work. My job is not to be popular. The one thing you learn in my job is don't try to be popular. <laughs> I mean, that's not the point. The satisfaction you're going to get out of it, maybe you're the, the only one who has that satisfaction, you try to get the thing decided correctly as best you can. And I think that knowing more in these areas, in certain areas, about what goes on will help me decide this case better as a matter of American law. And uh, whether that has other things attached to it and people cite us more or cite us less, that's, that's up to them. That's fine. Outstanding. I know I, it would make me popular to keep this going, <laughs> but I'm not going to try to be popular. I'm going to fulfill my obligation to end this on time. Uh, please join me in thanking both of our guests, Justice Schreier and Dolly Lifflet. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare podcast via your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.